Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 23rd, 2018. This is episode 2152 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Tuesday show. That means it's a Just Jack show. This is where we take one subject and we break it down and tear it apart and... Uh, See what we can learn together. Today we are going to talk about food production on small properties. How did I come up with this topic? I went into the Survival Podcast Facebook forum on Facebook, and I said, topic suggestions for today's show, go, 30 minutes. And a bunch came in, and I looked, and the two that seemed to have the most repetition were basically economics, retirement planning, debt management, things like that, retirement planning as a prepper. And uh, food production on a small scale. So I then removed that post, created a poll, and then I let the poll go for everybody. So I put it on my personal page, I put it in the form, I put it on the commercial page for this, this, this show. And uh, it was neck and neck for a while. It came down to about a 10%, 13% spread in favor of small, uh, small property food production. So that's what we're going to do. It does seem like there's a pretty big interest in going into retirement planning and things like that again, and I have a unique take on that that's not boring for those of you that don't think it is, um, that we may do very, very soon. Uh, but I got to tell you, the next two Tuesdays are not going to be just jack shows. Uh, next Tuesday, I worked in uh, two gentlemen from a thing called the Foundry. They're delegates, ARC delegates from the ARC cryptocurrency, and I've been so impressed with ARC, I worked them in to come talk to you guys about that. I've been hearing a lot of you guys getting in touch with me about ARC cryptocurrency. And then uh, next Tuesday, before I leave, I'll be gone for most of that week. I'll be gone Wednesday through Friday of that week uh, in New Hampshire for Liberty Forum. Uh, that Tuesday is me and Stephen Harris doing the next episode of the Bug Out Trailer Series. So hope you enjoy Just Jack today because you ain't going to have Just Jack for a while. I guess it is Just Jack on the Fridays and Mondays, but it's or Saturday, Mondays and Thursdays, uh, but it's not the same as this type of thing. Anyway, before we get to it... Um, Wanted to uh, let you guys know about our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is RidgeWallet.com. RidgeWallet's awesome. Um, I usually say I don't ask you to spend money on products that I wouldn't spend my own money on, but I, I, I was contacted by RidgeWallet. They wanted to sponsor the show. They started talking with me uh, right around the end of November, beginning of December uh, last year. I looked at their offer. I thought it was really cool and unique and different, and it is time to bring in some different sponsors. You can only... You know, certain things like if you buy from a sponsor once and never again, it's hard to continuously serve them well after this long. Um, and I, I decided, yeah, I would bring rich wallets on. And when, as we were in discussion, they said, well, let us send you a couple wallets. What color do you want? So I told them the phone case. So I'll, I'll be full disclosure, my rich wallet and my rich wallet phone case were both given to me. But uh, now that I have them, I love them. Um, it really is somewhat assuring to know that my credit cards are less likely to be stolen, uh, the information on them from the RFID tags inside the shielded wallet. Uh, and the phone case is just as top quality as it comes, and I have things in the little pouches in there, more like my discount membership cards at the stores and stuff. I don't really care if somebody you know gets the information. The, the phone case does not have RFID protection. And I asked uh, the rep that I'm working with about that, and he said it's by design because people a lot of times put their parking passes and things like that in their phone case, and they want to be able to hold it up and activate a you know a, a you know a, a thing to get in and stuff like that. But they're just fantastic products. They also have a very cool backpack. 
I'm really excited to be working with Ridge Wallets, and uh, if you check them out, I think you'll see why. Remember, they have a great discount for members of the Support Brigade as well. Next up today, JM Bullion. Guys, I talk a lot about cryptocurrency, but I am not liquidating any of my silver and gold, man. I'm telling you. It's not like I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out there and sell all of my silver and buy Bitcoin. No, no, no. If I can go back in two years and do it, I can buy it all back in more now, but you can't go backwards. You can only go forwards. The thing about silver is, let's say when I, I die and my wife dies, There'll be people we want to leave something behind to. We can do that completely anonymously. Go here, get your box when I'm gone. Think about that. Generational wealth, completely anonymous, and no one needs to know about between you, the people you care about, and the damn fence post, as we say down here in Texas. There is no other thing in the world with a multi-thousand-year history of value that can be completely anonymous yet When you look at it, you can tell in today's market this is worth X than silver and gold. They're, they're the two. Make sure they're part of your portfolio. I recommend 5% to 10% of your net wealth in silver and gold. And uh, I recommend JM Bullion because, well, great customer service. Best pricing I've found anywhere. And an ounce of silver is an ounce of silver. That's, why you, that's the whole point. So why would you pay more for it? You see what I mean? And uh, just the fact that I can talk to the president if there's any kind of an issue and get it sorted out for you, that, that matters to me. And I got you guys a discount on silver and gold. No one gets a discount on silver and gold. It's not done. It's not done. The industry is too small of a, of a margin. It's not huge, but on, on orders over 300 bucks, I get you guys a discount. All orders ship free. Why the hell else would you go anywhere other than jam bullion for your silver and gold? If you don't have silver and gold in your long-term wealth planning, you're wrong. I'm sorry. All right, before we dig into the topic today, let's look at the year 94 in uh, the year in history. David Verne has this for us up in the TSP Wiki, banning philosophers, because those guys are dangerous, right? Uh, some conservative senators, especially friends of Tactius and Pliny, are scheming to bring about an end to Domitian's reign. Domitian didn't know which specific senators were plotting against him, so he took several precautions. Since many of these senators are believers in the Stoic philosophy, Domitian had expelled all philosophers from Rome to prevent a larger conspiracy from forming. My take by David Verne, the philosophy of Stoicism is not about showing any, not, is about not showing any emotion. Rather, it was focused on having a mastery over one's own body through self-discipline. Their four cardinal virtues were wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. The Stoics also held, the rank, held that rank and wealth were of no importance in social relationships and believed in a natural dignity of all human beings. They advocated for a better treatment towards slaves, and many Stoic tenets are found in Christianity today. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, I've always tried to view myself, not in the classic sense uh, from history uh, as a Stoic, but in just the modern sense of being a Stoic person. I accept, and I think stoicism and pragmatism go hand in hand. By being pragmatic, you end up becoming stoic. This is my thoughts on that. I won't expand on it today because we've got a lot to cover. Um, what I'll say, you know, once again, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it often rhymes. The philosophers were considered dangerous because they could reach people through a means of communication. Just like, I don't know, Musical artists, especially, and, and actors. Remember the, uh, the, the, the family hour back in the 70s, which is basically censorship, telling networks what they could and couldn't put on TV at a certain time. Not an overall guidance of, like, you can't say these seven words, 
But like, oh, you have everything between these two hours has to be this way. And, and it, it, it's often the case that great change comes from things like philosophers, authors, artists, musicians. And that's one of the reasons they're often marginalized and made out to be the enemy by the people in power. The more things change, the more they stay the same. All right, with that, let me remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. You want to support this show, join the Member Support Brigade. And i got a big announcement. i got two big announcements, one on mem Members Brigade. Next week, it's going to be Monday or Tuesday. I ain't decided yet. A blog post will be forthcoming on exactly how to participate in this. I'm going to do a lifetime membership sale. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I never do like a wide open as many as want to get in. I, it's, it's just a business decision. It also is keeping value in it. But I'm gonna do a lifetime membership sale. 300 bucks, you're a member for the rest of your life. I'm gonna sell 20 of them, either Monday or Tuesday. It'll all be set up. There'll be an announcement. Um, and it's gonna be first come, first serve, like I always do it. Uh, basically, it'll be a point click buy button to uh, PayPal. And once they sell out, they sell out. The system cuts it off. That way, I can't cheat it uh, and do any back end favors for anybody. But I might do this. I might do an extra four at a discount. That's crazy because I don't ever discount MSB, uh, lifetime membership. But I might do four for like 250 or something like that with cryptocurrency as a separate thing. I'm thinking about that, um, just putting it out there. Uh, that would not, that actually probably would prevent the, I got to think about it because the way I do manage the sale is I create an inventory control system with uh, payments with credit cards and that way when you you know when you get to that number it's shut off because it usually goes like last time I did this I think I sold 20 in like six minutes or something like that so I'll have to think about it but just know it's coming and, and be paying attention if you've wanted to become a lifetime member of the MSB and it's going to be 300 bucks and I might discount down to as low as possibly 250 for cryptocurrency as much as I like ARC I'm thinking about selling four for $250 worth of ARC uh, that would just Really boost up my proof of stake there. Uh, now I got another announcement. This is going to be this. I, I said that I would be telling you guys something that we're going to be doing here on the farm uh, this year, and it kind of fits right in with today's topic, and it's why I held it to today to announce it. Um, that would enable us to do a lot more from a food production thing and change a lot of things about kind of our lifestyle. And that when I told you that, you're going to be like, Re "What, really?" And it's going to sound crazy to some of you um, when I tell you what we're doing this year. We are getting rid of the ducks. We are no longer going to be Nine Mile Farm in business to sell duck eggs. And I know a lot of you are like, I cannot believe that. Let me tell you where our thoughts are on this. Number one, Survival Podcast is my business. Nine Mile Farm was Dorothy's business. And when we moved here, you know, we had gone to a point where Dorothy had gone from working over 20 years as a nurse to being basically retired and, and young for being retired, man, and going, I need something to do. And we started playing around with the chickens and eventually the ducks, and we started building up this little bit of business, and it was a thing for her to do. Well, time changes things, and my son got married, was married to a woman that already had a young, a young child, and now they had a baby. And five days a week, my wife is caring for our granddaughter all day long, as you guys often hear her chime in on the show once in a while, and, and my grandson, you know, three to four hours a day all day long. She now has something to do. And, you know, we're paying labor on this. We're not really making the money we were when we didn't have labor. And because she's got these things in her life now, she's not managing the sales channel the way she used to. So it's not real profitable anymore. 
it's another thing we have to do. And then every time we want to travel, we're, you know, seven, eight hundred bucks into paying somebody to live here to take care of them. It's a lot easier to get somebody to let dogs out a few times a day and what have you uh, than to have somebody actually run a farm while you're gone for seven to ten days on a vacation. Additionally, I've gotten to the point where I really want to start building up the herbaceous layer, vegetative layer, etc. on my property. And without extensive additional fencing, I cannot do it. I can't. The ducks eat it, as I've, I've said many times. And they've done their job here. They've, they've transformed this property, and it's time for them to go on. So what is the plan? I have two plans. Uh, the first is preferable. If you're local and you've always wanted to be in this business and you have suitable land for it, I am willing to sell the entire business. Uh, for like $2,500. What would you get? Well, you get all the ducks, uh, but you would also get um, all the stuff that goes with the ducks, like their feeders and stuff like that. But you would also get the website, the Nine Mile Farm website. Now, I know you wouldn't be on Nine Mile Road, but we already have a brand built up. The logo, the customer email list, the customer contact list, the phone number uh, that we have. It would all be transferred to you in the domain name. So you basically get a turnkey business for this, and I'm willing to talk to you about financing. I'm going to tell you, because you're going to be transitioning, it's not going to be like a lock, stock, go. Uh, you're going to have to look at cutting your feed costs below what we, we did. I've got an inline on you for some organic feed like that, but you probably are better off initially, unless you already got something going on, going to commercial feed. And if you really want it to be something, uh, you know, we did it as a hobby. If you really want it to be something, as an income, it has to be a piece of something bigger. That's plan one, and I would love to do that with somebody locally. So, because I, my biggest concern here is not the ducks leaving, it's not the change that it represents for us, it's not you know do they become sausage or not. It's my customers. I've got customers that depend on us for health reasons and things like that, and I would love to be able to have them. So, I'm telling these people, you're not going to be able to buy from us anymore. It's going to be hard. It's going to be the hardest thing about it. So that would be plan one. Plan plan two is if I don't get hear from somebody pretty soon that wants to do that, it has a reasonable pathway to doing it. Like, you know, within the next 40 days, you're going to be able to do this. I'm going to just put them on Craigslist for sale individually. And I'll sell, like, the common ducks for 10 bucks, the special ones for 15 the geese for 25 bucks. But all of them are going. Um, and uh, it's going to be a big change in our lives, but I think from a lifestyle standpoint and where we are now, it's it's time to move to that level. So if you're interested... Get in touch with me. All right. Uh, that brings me to kind of the topic today. And I know it was kind of a long intro, and I, I try to keep them down. But, you know, that's a, that's a big thing, right? So no more Duck Chronicles. Yeah. Uh, you can have the Duck Chronicles domain, too, if you want to take over doing that, uh, if you buy it. But we moved here, and we looked at this property, and I was like, oh, my God, three acres. I can finally do And I planted trees, and I put in swales, and it also, and a lot of it worked really good. A lot of it worked okay, and a lot of it didn't work so good. But it's okay. That was part of the plan. And we evolved into this duck business. And at some point, I sat back, and I looked at it, and I said, you know, it's great that I have all this long-term stuff going on now, all these trees that will be here. You know, probably I'll be dead, and there'll still be some of the trees I planted here producing. That's good. But when it comes down to it, and this is kind of a come-to-Jesus moment I had with myself two years ago. I used to produce more food for the table from a veg vegetative standpoint when we had our third of an acre in Arlington than I'm doing right now. I'm working so much harder and getting so much less out of it. And many of you saw me kind of retool and take this area between like the back of the house and where the aviary and aquaponics system is and say, this is where we shall make our stand and we will treat this like a backyard. And it's, it's why I think this is a good show for everybody today. 
I know some of you have more land than me. Some of you have a little less. Some have about what I have. Most of you have the type of lot we're talking about today primarily. The average lot in America is between a 20th and a quarter of an acre. That's, that's, that's average. But the, like when you dial into the sweet spot and what specific, specifically what builders have been doing primarily for the last 25 years, They're doing lots that are somewhere between 50 to 60 foot wide by 100 to 120 feet deep, which is you know about 0.11 to 0.16 acres. That's the average suburban lot today. Some are smaller and some are bigger, and you get corner lots and stuff like that. But in general, when you run the numbers over the last 25 years, in not all but most of America, that's what they've been doing. And, and lots of people dream of owning more land at some point, but the truth is more land is more work. I can tell you that. And even with three acres, now I'm focused mostly on about three-quarters of an acre on my property. And out of that three-quarters of an acre, 80% of my effort goes into less than a quarter of an acre. And, and, and 90% of my results that actually are tangible and I can eat it today or next week or this season come from less than a quarter of an acre now. And as I think back, this makes a lot of sense to me. So I grew up in two places as a kid. I grew up in Florida, and I was really young there. I mean, we left when I was 13. So I was pretty much the kid running around with the BB gun playing in the woods there. I did a little bit of gardening and stuff because I always thought it was cool. My one grandmother was more into like the flowers and stuff like that. But when I really got into the hunting heavily uh, and to you know food production and food storage and all that was when we went and lived with my Ukrainian grandparents in Pennsylvania. And they had about an acre-ish of, of land, and they probably had about a one-twentieth of an acre garden. And that garden produced so much food for us. And I remember I used to think about we had you know people we knew that were farmers in the traditional sense. And back then there were still a lot of farms that were 40 to 120 acres. You know, not everybody was farming a thousand acres. It was you know it was after the go big or go home speech from the Secretary of Agriculture in the 70s. But there were still a lot of those small farms, especially in the Northeast, hanging on. And I remember thinking how much land they had, how much food they must be able to produce. But the funny thing was when I went to visit any of them you would notice that they had a garden about the same size as ours, and all the stuff they produced for themselves mainly came from that. And all those you know, 40-acre tracks were growing corn or beans or something like that. Maybe they were farming turkeys or something in a, you know, a, a little bit better than they do today, but still kind of very, very commercially. But they were producing for themselves on this little homestead garden. And if we look back through the history of the United States, that's always been the way that it's been. When you went, you know, when you went west and got 40 acres and a mule for settling or whatever, people put in a small home garden first and fed themselves, and they 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 put that field into larger scale production. You know, they might have had what we would consider like a zone three in permaculture with some corn or larger crops for themselves as well, but it, it was still a very small relative to the whole, a zone one, zone two permaculture model. And, and that's why I think this is something we should all look at. Because I can tell you from experience, when you get on large acreage, your mind expands to all these things you can do, and you forget the cardinal rule of permaculture from Jeff Lawton. Walk out your back door, look down at your feet, look at that square meter, square yard, and design that. 
And then take two steps and design that. And then take two steps to the side and design that. And then take two steps, three steps, four steps back across and design that. Design that that place that you walk out every day first. And, and sometimes there's maybe not as much practicality in it. If you do have more, maybe you step out a little bit further where the sun shines instead of where the shade is or what have you. But that overall mindset, no matter how much land you have, your greatest production will come from less than a half of an acre, I promise you. It really will for personal use. You know, if you're let's let's say you're planting corn and beans and you're doing it in a more permaculture way in a zone three, how much of it are you going to eat at a certain point when you go to a beyond a certain level of production, you're producing for market or for some other purpose, not just for yourself. How much lettuce can a man eat? How many carrots can one man eat? So it is gonna be this intention managed area. Even at the Permaculture Research Institute in Australia, where they feed hundreds of students and interns and, and teachers. They're on like, I think, 80 acres or 60 acres or something like that. Their main garden, even with all those people and all those hands to help, is less than two acres. And that's only because they have hundreds. I mean, in, in some instances, they produce food they can't even use with that two acres, with that many people there. And the larger systems are animal-based systems. They're chicken systems. They're cow systems. They're grazing systems. And we're not going to have that in most of our property. Some of us do, but most of us don't. Even if we do, we need that intensive production system. So I want to talk about, like, if you're settling for a smaller lot, like you've decided, I, I, I can't do the acreage thing, I don't want to do, it's not geographically feasible where I live or whatever, and you're going to have to get that small lot. What are some things to look for? Um, I love corner lots. I love back-of-cul-de-sac lots without anybody behind you. Even somebody with somebody behind you, cul-de-sacs are beautiful for a lot of reasons. But one is, if you're in the back cul-de-sac lot, you might have a lot very similar to what I had in Arlington, where you kind of have this trapezial-shaped yard, and you end up with a yard that's disproportionately large compared to everybody around you. That's always a good place to look. When you're shopping for houses, get on Google Maps, get on that satellite view, and start looking at things like this before you even waste time going to the house. It helps you make a lot of decisions. Um, solar aspect making sure that you have some spot somewhere where you can get sun. If, if you're already there, you got to work with what you have. But if you're buying, like these are things to really look for. Um, neighborhoods where you see people gardening or orcharding or something already are fantastic because you know you're going to have any problems there. I, I really, one of the things I loved about our place in Arlington, and I wasn't so much into this. I was a gardener, you know, but I wasn't so much into this way I am today when we bought that house. But when I walked out into the back, I was coming from, we had a one and a half acre lot in Pennsylvania. It was gorgeous with mountain views and everything. We're coming back to Texas, and I knew I couldn't afford to buy that kind of land at that time. But when I walked out there and it was open, I felt like I'm not giving that much up. I've got sky, right? I've got space. The kids can throw a football. I can put in a swimming pool, whatever. But there were also like these, these two huge oaks to one side of the property and a big... Uh, black ash to the rear of the property. And those areas obviously were shaded. But they were also kind of tucked away and hidden. And I realized like, if there's anything that I want to do that maybe it's not illegal, you can't really stop me, but it just generate complaints, there's kind of areas I can tuck things away where they're not seen. And if you don't see it, you don't complain about it. So those are some of the things I think you really need to be looking at. And obviously, I, I'm not going to go on an HOA rant today, I promise, but no HOAs. And, and don't tell me you can't find a place without them because it's bullshit. 
It's bullshit. It's bullshit. It's bullshit. Um, new, the newer the neighborhood, the more likely it is you can't find one without one. The older the neighborhood, the more likely it is they don't have one. Because people that don't have one and never had one are not under the illusion that they need more government to protect their property. Um, local ordinances, if you have your heart set on chickens, don't move where there's a chicken ban. You know? Um, and then be open to other things. We'll start talking about things like chicken and quail and stuff here in just a minute. But those are some things to look for. Where you could put in something like a greenhouse. Just even a small 8 by 10 6 by 8 even greenhouse. Um, that's a good thing. Where you can locate things like compost systems and things like that, worm beds, etc. Kind of think with a designer's eye how you would set things up. What are the things that you most want in your life? And then when you look at a piece of property, you can envision where they'd go. Because the, the, the big problem I see is a lot of these neighborhoods, there are no trees at all yet. The houses are stacked on top of each other. And when you walk out in the back door, you're literally looking at a little square patch of green. And if that's you and you have to deal with it, that's okay. We'll talk about ways you can do it. But it's certainly a lot harder. Because even with six-foot fencing, everybody can see every inch of everybody's backyard. And then there's no... There's very, there's very limited microclimates because there are no trees. And you have too many, I understand, but when there's none, and everything's the same, and everything's very Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, everything's like there's four different houses repeating themselves. And people that move into that, they're generally the ones that object the most to change because everything looked the same, and that's why they move there. So older neighborhoods, a little bit larger lots, corner lots, cul-de-sacs, Any type of reserved land abutting your land, nature reserves, riparian areas, places where people just like, no one's going to build there because it's not practical, things like that, because that prevents you from making a decision, getting something the way you love, and then somebody comes in and does something that changes like how much sun it gets and things like that. So those are some things to look for. Uh, let's talk about the primary technique. I have a ton of primary techniques, and I think today's episode is more about thinking, like here's all the stuff that's available. Uh, Jeff Watton from the permaculture world talks about it like the permaculture wardrobe. So like you and I might be going to two different places and you're going to somewhere black tie and I hate black tie. So you're going to get your stuff out to dress for a black tie event. I'm going to get my old concert t-shirt out from back in the freaking 80s, my Torah jeans. But maybe someday I'm going to be going somewhere else and so maybe I'm going to wear some nice boots. I'm going to dress to the occasion and you're going to dress to the occasion. And we can use the same type of wardrobe with the same clothing, but we'll select what we want for the instance. So what I want to do is like lay out the wardrobe. Here's all the things that you can consider, and then you back them into your unique situation. Um, I'm going to start off with livestock. And the reason I'm going to do that is there is nothing that you can do on a homestead of any size that can compete from the standpoint of nutrient and calories than livestock. Everything else you do pales in comparison. The effort put in to one chicken egg compared to the effort put into one potato, and then you, you look at the difference in how much your body benefits from the consumption of that product, and the egg wins. Especially since the chicken produces the eggs, It produces manure. The manure goes into a composting system that feeds the potato. And when the chicken's two or three years old, even though they're not the best chickens in the world to eat, you have a stewing bird at the end of it. right? The potato cannot compete with that. 
And in many ways, unless we're bringing a lot of outside inputs in, some sort of animal system is the nutrient cycle for the, for the vegetative growth, which is what we're going to spend the majority of time on today. Um, rabbits, I think, I mean, I think your three big ones, and, and there are other things you can do, but your three big ones for home food production are rabbits, quail, and chickens. And I'll give you my thoughts on them here. Number one, the one that you are least likely to have to deal with any kind of town ordinance bullshit over is rabbits. And I know you saw some guy in Australia that they busted because he was eating his rabbits, and you're not supposed to eat rabbits because they're only for, and I don't. We don't live in Australia. Some of you do, most of you don't. And that's even one freaking yuppie microcosm in Australia. Don't move there, okay? Rabbits are pets, and if you're eating your rabbits, your neighbors do not need to know. They are quiet. They make no noise. One buck and three does can produce a shit ton of meat per year. I mean a shit ton of meat per year. It, it does take a, a learning curve to learn how to manage your your rabbits. A lot of times it's better to have a second buck in case one dies or something bad happens to him or he's just not doing his job. Um, but then you have an, a useless eater in some ways. A lot of times it's better to have friends that have rabbits and you, know, you can swap bucks out or something like that once in a while. Um, but they're an incredible meat source. You can do a lot. If you have a, a typical American lawn, as long as you're not true green chem lawning it, with a bag lawnmower, you can provide them a tremendous amount of their feed, which reduces your outward cost. And they are fantastic eating. But it takes a certain amount of willingness to kill a cute little bunny. That's just the case. Um, chickens. Chickens in most, I'm gonna, I'll always hear from one, I do it, I do 25 meat chickens a year, that's fine for you. For most people uh, doing things on the type of land we're talking about today, chickens are not a good meat animal. Um, they, they surplus coals become meat. And, and please have a plan for what you're going to do when your four little hens that you got, that you treated like little pets, are now four years old and they give you one egg a month. And in return for that, they want a lot of feed. You see what I'm saying? You gotta have a plan for that because nobody wants them at that point. There's no, there's no happy retirement home for egg laying chickens. It's time for them to go to stew pot. So you do get that. You can do it a little bit. You can certainly incubate eggs. Uh, now you need a rooster. Roosters make noise. Noise causes problems. Alright, so I think the, the purpose for chickens on, on a home property is composting and egg production and possibly doing tractor work, whether you're moving them through your gardens or stuff, but they're in some kind of contained area. You can't generally let chickens loose on property like this. They'll tear up your gardens. They'll tear up your neighbor's gardens. They'll shit on your neighbor's car. They'll cause problems. So you're going to have to put them in some sort of tractor, mobile, coop and run, some type of system. And, and that's what you get is you get composting and you get disposal of every edible thing you can think of. They will take care of it for you and make compost out of it, and they will make you eggs. And it, they will not co cost much to feed the number of chickens you need for a, a smaller property. Quail, if you want meat and eggs, you want quail. Uh, you can come take a look at our quail tractors over at, uh, at our website. I'll have a link today uh, for, our, for our, our quail tracker. Uh, we have a stacker coming out soon. Uh, that's all good and well, but you can do it on your own. You can do it with an aviary. You can do it in rack systems. You can hand build it. Do whatever you want. But the thing about quail is about four, three to four quail eggs will equal one chicken egg. And a quail will give you one quail, if you keep the light, the food, and the water right, will give you 28 
to 30 eggs a month, period. And I know we're supposed to be permaculturists and do everything natural and things run free and open and all, but even if you look at Jeff Lawton's videos, you'll see small cages with bunches of quails in them. Why? Because that's how quail were bred to be raised. And we can easily take a small rack system and have two dozen quail in it with a couple males. And they will produce fertile eggs. They will produce edible eggs. We can incubate those birds. And from the time that egg hatches in six weeks, we can process meat. I've done a lot of stuff on quail in the past, so I'm not going to turn this into a quail lecture. But just if you want meat and eggs from a single animal, you want quail. They are decent composters. They are okay in tractors to improve fertility, but mostly what they do with tractoring fertility is you just move them around, they poop there that day. They don't do a lot of scratching. They will eat bugs. They will eat seeds. So they will pick out weed seeds and stuff like that, but they won't work as hard as a chicken. I've had them in my life for three years now. They will not work as hard as a chicken, period. But that's what they're good for. Next, the basic old-fashioned raised beds. It's probably the best place for the average homesteader to start. Um, you can do basically bermed up beds without any kind of a border. You can put a border around them. Uh, two by ten is about the sweet size lumber. Yes, use pressure treated lumber. I'm not going to go into it today. No, it's not going to make you sick. No, it's not going to kill you. No, you're not going to die. No, you're not going to get cancer. I don't want to hear it anymore. Pressure treated lumber will not hurt you if you use it in gardens. The end. Infinity. Done. <sighs> there I feel better. Don't tell me. I don't want to hear about it. I'm done. I've done this too many times. Uh, the the pressure-treated material I use today, you're going to get more toxins by going out and breathing the air outside than you will out of 10 years eating out of a raised bed made with pressure-treated lumber. Um, raised beds solve a lot of problems. If you want to put irrigation in, you can basically throw your PVC-based irrigation pipe in the ground, uh, you know, put the build the box, throw the pipe in it. You do have to, you know, trench your pipe to connect up to it. And fill it in, and you're good. I mean, so you can put automated irrigation in, and I would. Um, I like a four-foot width, no no larger for my raised beds. That makes it easy to reach from both sides and not have any part you can't get to without stepping in it. The day you build your raised bed and fill it up with dirt should be probably, in most instances, the last time you ever step foot on the earth inside of it. Never compact it. Um Choose vegetables that are productive for your area, that grow well in your area, that you eat. I know that sounds obvious, but I have to say it all the time because people grow things and, like, I grew a 100 radishes. Do you like radishes? No. Why'd you do that? Uh, chickens don't even really care that much for radishes. Uh, so, so raised bed gardens, I, I, I think there is. I'm not a big fan of square foot gardens at this point in my life, um, but I think they serve a very good base point, starting point. I think they're very useful for getting people in the right mindset. I think when we take something like a four by four foot bed that has 16 squares in it and you manage each square individually, it gets that mind around the concept of what can I do with this space? So the fact that this, these couple heads of lettuce, you know, maybe have four heads of lettuce in this square are starting to bolt and go to seed. They're going to need to come out and something's going to go back in that one square foot, even though the square foot to the left, right center of it, all are going to keep going for another few weeks or for the rest of the season, for that matter. The ones in the back that have tomatoes, they're going to go to the first frost. The second row that are peppers, they're going to go to the first frost. The the one in the the you know the second row back, maybe there's going to be some transition there. The ones in the front 
Let's put those into things like lettuces that are going to transition into summer greens because they're the ones that I'm going to have to do the most work on so they're most accessible. Got it? So I love square foot gardening uh, for what it does. I don't think it's necessary for everybody. Uh, and moving myself more to wicking beds and using you know, stock tanks and all, it doesn't translate as well as a square bed on the ground. But if you're going to do raised beds, you could do worse, even if you don't end up choosing to do square foot gardening for the rest of your life, than to pick up Mel Bartholomew's book. More on that in a bit. Um, the next thing is edible landscaping. When you are using smaller blocks of land, it makes sense that if you plant something, it does something for you, right? If it's not edible, maybe it's a tree that provides a scaffolding for scarlet runner beans. Okay, scarlet runner beans are fantastic. Bill Mollison referred to the scarlet runner bean as probably the best GD bean in the world. That's pretty high praise. Okay, um, with taller trees that are open canopy way up, a lot of times they get plenty of sun against their trunk, and something like scarlet runner beans running up them. And then you have these beautiful red flowers, and hummingbirds come, and bees come, and you get beans, and your nosy neighbor out the front yard doesn't see it as a front yard garden. Um, your flower bed type arrangements can be done 90% with herbs and 10% with some common, you know, pollinator attracting typical ornamental flowers. And no one sees that as a problem. If you're going to put a tree in the backyard, put a peach tree or an apple tree or a fig tree or something that produces food in your backyard. Um, don't go putting, you know, a, a, a freaking Japanese maple in your backyard unless you have enough space and you're willing to use that space for your Japanese maple. What I find is people plant a lot of stuff that doesn't produce anything and they say they have no room. So, so think about the edible systems first and use edible landscaping. When you're doing uh, some sort of ornamental out front, look at things like rainbow and peppermint Swiss chard. As plants, because it looks beautiful. It's got all this color to it, yet it's an edible, and it's a fantastic edible. And it, it, it's a cut-and-come-again edible. So we can cut it, it grows back. We can cut it, it grows back. We can cut it, it grows back. If you have mild winters, a lot of places it will overwinter. I've had chard in Texas overwinter for three years. It's a biannual, goes to see the second year and dies. Well, okay, mine didn't. Maybe because I kept cutting it, it never got a chance to go to seed. I've got chard that's been in my aquaponics system for two years now. Right, so like think edible landscaping, um, bringing in a permaculture principle. Use edges and value the marginal. What does that mean? That means that you look at this little yard, okay, and let's say it is you know your typical sixty by one hundred and twenty foot yard, and let's just blow off half of it. Because the house sits on it, the front yard is not as usable as, let's say, the backyard. So let's say that the backyard is half of that, or 60 by 60 feet. And let's say that the, the, the 60 foot that is basically right up against the, the, the back porch of the house isn't quite as usable. So then it's 60 by 60 by 60. That's 180 linear feet along the fence alone. I'm going to say it again just to drive it home. In that little ass, 0.16 of an acre lot, the half of the lot, assuming the house is about center of the property, that's in the back, if it's fenced in, has 180 linear feet along that fence that generally people don't do anything with. 
If we look at that, also we are going to have at least, maybe more, but at least three to four distinct microclimates. First, you have three macro microclimates, right? Because one, let's say one fence is facing east, one is facing west, and that would mean that the back one either has to be facing north or south. So those three are obvious. But you also have corners. And a northwest and a northeast corner are distinctive microclimates apart from the other three. So now you've got five. If that fence line goes up and basically has an alleyway kind of you know, set up between the house and the wall, now we've got another microclimate. And if it does that on the other side of the house, now we have another microclimate. So now we're at a point where we have five, six distinct microclimates just on that 180 linear feet of fencing, just in the backyard. And what do most people do with it? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. I don't have any space. You have 180 linear feet here. Listen, that one gets blasted with the sun all day. And look at those fence poles that hold that fence up. Looks like a grape trellis to me. So we plant our grape trellises. Now we pop some of those scarlet runner beans right next to the grapevines. And they kind of grow up and onto the grapevines. And we just need to clear some out where the grape clusters form. Now we've got two food products coming off of that one piece of that linear footage. And we can still put now, we've pruned those up from the bottom, and then we maybe create like a one-foot wide bed that runs along that fence. And now we can put in lower crops that don't get shaded because they're facing the sun and the stuff that's over them is up against the fence. Maybe on the other side we get enough sun that it's, it's doable to do uh, trees, and we put a couple pear trees in and espalier them. So we train the pears like grapes. Maybe we take things that are a little bit uh, iffy with the heat in our summers, and they go on the fence that gets half the day shade. And if we just focused on that 180 square feet in most properties, we could produce a shit ton of stuff. And we haven't even touched the part that most people use yet. That's using edges and valuing the marginal. Another example of that, every time we create some structure, we create an edge. So if we create a coop and run for our chickens, the ex exterior of the run, where the fencing is, becomes an edge. And they can reach through it, and they can nibble off, but if we keep enough separation and train things up and then onto, we create shade for our chickens. We create maybe a crop for us or a crop for our chickens. They take up the excess nutrient that leaches out from the run, and yet they probably don't have a lot of pest pressure because pests are coming there and zooming around and crawling through, and sooner or later they end up inside the run. Where am I at? Boom, you're in a chicken, bitch. That's where you are, right? So... That's another example of the edge and the marginal. Now I want to go back to the same thing again, but you know, scarlet runner beans climb up stuff and have beautiful flowers. House walls are edges. The little thing that they, they landscape around your mailbox is an edge. It's marginal. We can pop edible landscaping or, or herbs into those situations. And this is how we begin to do more with less. Or maybe to do more with more, depending on how we look at it. Next, backyard orchards. There's no way I can have an orchard in my backyard. Dumbass, only have 0.15 acres. Well, do you know that trees grow as big as we let them grow? And if you look at like Dave Wilson's workings, Google Dave Wilson backyard orchards, they'll take a tree that's a full-size, full rootstock tree, 
And they'll prune it so it never gets any higher than five foot tall and never gets any bigger in canopy than four to five foot in canopy. They'll take four trees, dig one hole, put all four trees in one hole, and prune them like a multi-graph tree, except each tree is an independent tree, each with about a, you know, about a two to three foot canopy growing like a bush. And well pruned underneath to where the space below that tree can still grow other plants. And that tree, you do not need, in fact, I actually am opposed to dwarfing rootstock. I think semi-dwarf is as small as I want to go. Control the growth of the tree with a pair of pruners. You can prune it two to three times a year. And you can control that tree's height and size forever. And massive amount of production can be done with backyard orcharding that way. So that's one to look into. I just did a show on it, so I won't go deep in it today, but aquaponics. I don't believe anything can produce per square foot of used space what aquaponics can. Because I can plant my density so high because I'm bringing everything the plant needs to the plant. If I need to do some fertilization, I can use, a, if it doesn't, something's not going to harm my fish, I can just throw it in the water. If they need a little bit more of something and it's going to be something that, that I really can't just dump into the fish tank, well, I can just get a little sprayer and I can, I can spray. And because everything's in beds, everything's well organized, everything's at eye level, you know, one little half gallon pickup sprayer. And I can go out there and I can manage everything intensely. And I get fish as a byproduct. Again, as I said last time I talked about aquaponics last week, they're not heavy fish production systems, but they are fish byproduct systems. Um, so aquaponics is something I think everybody should look into just from a standpoint of recycling vegetables. I talked about this last week. But you mean, I take celery and I pull all of the celery off the outside and leave a little celery core, stick it in the ebb and flow bed, and it starts growing again. I do that with lettuce. I do that with pak choy. I do that with green onions. You cut the tip off the green onion, stick it in there, it grows back. And then plant propagation as well. They're just fantastic for that. So aquaponics. Sprouting and microgreens. My buddy David has a pretty um, good method for doing your sprouting. You take your daikon seeds or your, your bean seeds or your sunflower seed or whatever it is you want to sprout. And you get a, a ball jar, like a one-quart or one-pint ball jar, depending on how much you want to make. You take a piece of screen, like, you know, screen for your screen windows. You cut a piece of square screen big enough to cover the top of that. And the lid that goes on, you know, you get the ring and the lid. You just toss the lid somewhere else. You put the screen over it and you screw it on so that basically you've screwed on the screen to the jar. Take it back off. Now you know it works. Throw the seed in there as much as you need to make sprouts with. Put that, put that screen back on it and stick it under the faucet and fill it up with water. Shake it up, turn it over, and drain it out. And take your dish rack that's sitting there anyway and just set your jar upside down in the dish rack and it'll drain right into your sink like your dishes do. And once a day, pick that jar up, fill it up with water, swish it around, dump it out until it sprouts. Now you got sprouts. Now we can take something like sunflower daikon. We can make sprouts every day with no work. Now I know that's not what we traditionally think of as, as homesteading, but what it does is it puts fresh food in our lives on a daily basis that we're producing for ourselves. And yeah, you gotta buy a lot of seed, but the seed's cheap. And you do that with just about any kind of a sprout. Uh, microgreens take things to another level. We can do this outside, uh, with flats, or we can do it indoors with lighting. But you know, I, I've mentioned this before, but with microgreen growing, we can take and produce beautiful salad greens out of cheap black oil sunflower in seven to ten days, depending on temperature. So if we start now, I, 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 before I kind of put that together, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep going through all of these techniques. Um, 
Next up, container gardening. If you go to today's uh, episode on the survivalpodcast.com, you're going to see a picture that looks like a YouTube video. It's a screenshot of a video. If you click it, it'll take you through to a video. And it is the garden that I had in Arlington back in 2010. And there's a lot of uh, raised beds in it, but there's also a lot of container planting. And when I put that video out, and it's just a just picture slideshow with some music playing. When I put that out, people looked at it and said, I can't believe how much you shoved into one flower pot. But if you look at it, it's all beautiful. It's growing. It's all, and we're eating it. And it's, you know, there's orach and there's marigolds in there for pest repellent and there's tomatoes growing and, and, you know, I mean, just so much spinach and it's all in this like one flower pot. Container gardening is huge. Because when you do container gardening, and if you think about aquaponics as a form of container gardening, right? But when we do container gardening, we control exactly what that soil is that goes in there. We start out with no pests. We start out with no insects. Uh, we start out with no diseases, no pathogens, no bad things. And all that stuff will show up in time, but it's so much easier to keep the population down than to start where it's high and try to knock it down. And then they're movable. So if I have this pot and I decide all of a sudden, you know what, this was great in March. But now that we're near June, it's getting too much sun. It really needs to be two foot back to where it'll get the shadow line a little bit earlier in the year. I pick it up and move it. Can't do that with a raised bed, can you? And so we can even take things like doing dwarf fruit trees or something like blueberries. Like the best way in the world to grow blueberries is in a container. Uh, unless you live in a place with naturally acidic soil. If you live in, in Texas... Or anywhere where you have alkaline soil, growing blueberries is just a exercise in futility in the ground. Now, I know there's some places in Texas you can grow blueberries. There's places in Texas where they grow phenomenally well. I said alkaline soil. If you have soil with a, a, a pH of like 7274 like I do, and you plant a blueberry, and you love on it, and you give it everything a blueberry could want. You even use some organic azalea fertilizer to give it some acidity. What will happen is, like, you'll be like, people are stupid. Well, I can grow blueberries here. They don't know what they're talking about. Look at that blueberry. And, like, June will come, and it'll still look really good. You'll think, man, next year's going to be great. And July comes, and it looks like somebody came and pissed on it every day for a month. The leaves just burn up as soon as it goes under any stress. Without alkalinity. Well, if we make a container, we can make a stick acidic soil. Well, we can train that blueberry bush, shrub, to be taller than normal. We can prune out the underside of it so that we're not taking that pot and only getting blueberries out of it. Now we can grow things like orange. We can grow amaranth in, in succession down there. So we take something like, like I talked about last week, and the granddaughter's upset again. <laughs> But container gardening and not growing a thing in containers, growing things in containers. Next up would be plant propagation. I think to really be self-sufficient, you don't have to start all plants from seed, and specifically you don't have to start all seed in you know some sort of plant starting system. Uh, if you have a small property, you only need to propagate so many trees or bushes or vines where you got all you could ever use. But having a, a, a small dedicated area, even if it's just a couple grow lights and some shelving, to be able to start like your peppers and your tomatoes and things like that. Now, let me say, if it's your first year of gardening, go buy your plants. Right? I mean, I, I, I think Nick Ferguson and I are so lockstep on this. Like, you should be learning one to four new skill sets at a time, maximum. 
And if you're starting plants, making compost, building beds, cultivating through the season, right? You're you're getting into like, and then are you doing anything else? And it gives you to be too much. So gardening, just the basic concept of we plant, we tend, we harvest, we success. That is a skill set. If you're doing your first year of that, when it comes to gardening, do as little else as possible. Direct sow, buy plants, done, okay? Um, and then next year, we can look at starting our own plants when we get a feel for it. Because all we want is success out of the first year. That gives us motivation, and we'll keep going. Um, but having some dedicated plant propagation plan long-term, I think, is a great idea. Small greenhouses, I think, are huge. Um, small lot, small greenhouse, period. But even something as small as, like, six by eight, properly managed can do a lot from you from plant propagation, overwintering crops and things like that. I'll put a video in the show notes today too with like greenhouse, it depends what that really means. I have a video where I took some old fish tanks and I had a raised bed and I had lettuce growing in them and I just stuck the greenhouses over top of the the lettuce in the cold parts of the of the year. And the growth diff the growth difference between the same plants in the same bed a couple feet apart, the ones that were covered versus not covered, is immense. So when I say small greenhouses, think row covers, cold frames, actual stand-up greenhouses, sunrooms, whatever. But just container gardening, so start putting these things together. Um, then wild foraging. If there's something you can forage wild in your area, go do that. That means all you do is harvest. You don't plant, you don't maintain, you don't worry about pests. So, so be looking for things like common things that make a really good local harvest. Mushrooms, blackberries, wild strawberries, wild raspberries, wild blueberries. Those are the ones that, in my experience, are the most common. But you can also look at pot herbs like plantain and things like that. Chickweed is actually an incredibly good-eating plant that often can be harvested, uh, just foraged locally. Um, purslane is another great plant like that. Learn what's in your area, do wild foraging, and then add things like hunting and fishing to the mix. And, and like growing up, I realized like, this is how we really lived. We had we didn't have rabbits. We had some chickens. We had our gardens. When we planted trees and stuff, we always tried to plant something. Did something. We grew grapevines. We had our cold frame underneath the grapevine. It was you know the grapevine was clear in the winter when the cold frame was being used and shaded when it was doing late season starting when you needed shade for the plants that would be down in the cold frame without the, the lid closed. Like this is exactly what we went hunting, we went fishing, everything went together. We didn't do aquaponics, we didn't do sprouting, we didn't do microgreens, really didn't do container planting. These are all things that have become you know much more popular in the last 10, 15 years than they were 30 years ago. But the philosophy is the same. So when you really start thinking about it, You start thinking about it with uh, uh, the concept of something like, well, we have some quail, and the quail produce waste. The waste go into a worm bin. The worm bin produces worm castings and high-quality compost that goes to the garden that grows to the plants. We have an herb garden. The herb garden produces herbs for the for dinner. The quail, occasionally we cull out or we make a meat. You see, you start to start piecing it back together. If we have an aquaponics system, the aquaponics system can be used to plant, to propagate plants. Additionally, if we do something like we grow lettuce in our garden, we can go ahead and harvest the whole plant, take the leaves off, throw the core back into the aquaponics system. Or we can take the outer leaves that are kind of crabby, feed them to the chickens that then make compost 
through manure back into, so you start closing the loops. And one of the really great things to do, and this is a great exercise if you're doing a permaculture design course for your project, list all of these elements. All these are more like techniques. So <clears throat> growing rabbits for meat is a technique. Um, edible landscaping is a technique. Backyard orcharding is a technique. Aquaponics is a technique. And if we just like take a big page, instead of writing them like a list, write them out like fruit on a tree, spread out like that. And then let's start drawing lines that connect them. How do I, how does this connect to this connect to that? And come up with answers. And on those lines, write provides nutrient, provides food, provides fertility. And put yourself in the diagram, the family, right? Provides food, provides, and then how do we interact with those things back? When you start to see the way they all interact, then what I'm about to go through now, the way to think about these techniques starts to make a lot more sense. Number one, think in layers. I talked about this with the container gardening, but if we have a large object in a container, but it can come up, it's almost inconceivable that we cannot find a place for it where if we prune out the underneath, the soil layer is still going to get sun. Because the sun's only directly overhead for a very short period of time during the day. So now we can take that blueberry bush and we can do something like uh, Hobie Red Dye Amaranth. was what I used to grow with my blueberries in Arlington all the time. So I trained, and you can get more of a high bush style blueberry and train the bottom up in a foot like a tr more like a tree, like a multi-stem tree. Prune that out, and a foot is plenty of room to grow red, red amaranth if you're growing it as a salad green or as a, a braising green. So let me just take a small handful of those things, and we just sprinkle them in there and water it every day until they sprout. Once they sprout, we just let it go. As they come up, they're going to be overpopulated. We pull a whole bunch of them out, and we use them as microgreens. Then we pull a whole bunch of them out, and we use them as baby greens. Then we let 10, 12, 15, 20 of them come up to be about a foot tall. We cut those off at the bottom, and we use those as a braising green, as a stir-fry green, something like that. Some of them will grow back. Or we decide we've had enough of amaranth for this time of the year because it's really a good early season crop. And we go in there and we, we, we kind of just basically lightly till that soil up. And we plant something else and we success into that. We take half the amaranth off one side, we plant it, we let the other side get a little bit bigger. Then when we take it, we plant it with something else and we success to two different things because we're thinking in layers. So you got to start thinking about lit, if we need vertical space, but not horizontal, what do we fill the horizontal with? If we need horizontal space but not vertical, what do we fill the vertical with? And all of a sudden, the same square foot produces two or three times more food. And if we're intensively managing it, it's okay. Bring nutrients to the plants. That's why I love aquaponics. We can go so much more dense because we're bringing the plant everything it needs. But if we're doing container gardening, and you're basically managing a single square foot, that you can take high-quality compost out of your animal system or that you've bought in from somewhere else and, and, and just layer the whole top of that. You, you, you almost you, The spatial limitation is more of a concern of how much light and space there is to grow than the nutrient concern at that point. The same thing with square foot gardening. You put a couple four-foot by eight-foot beds in, but manage them by the square foot, And we're, we're pulling out plants at different times and replacing them all. If one area looks like it needs more fertility, we bring the fertility to that area. Okay? Um, next, succession planting, which I've been talking about. You get so much more out of a square foot if every time you get to the point where that plant just isn't going to... Maybe you could get a little bit more out of it. 
But it's just not going to give you that much more anymore. Let's say we planted lettuce, and we've cut and come again, and we've cut and come again, and it's trying to, it's, it's starting to send up a seed head and whatever, and it, it just isn't going to be that great anymore. Well, if we go in there, and let's say we planted it dead center in that one square foot in a square foot garden, and all around the outside, right at the point that that lettuce is doing that, <clears throat> we pop in bush green beans. So we're going to have a square foot of bush green beans, okay? Leave the lettuce plant alone. Start pulling all the leaves off it and excel and don't mess with the stem and accelerate that stem coming up. Okay? Now that stem comes up and puts seed on. Let it go to seed, cut the stem off, put it in a brown paper bag loosely tied up and let it dry. Okay? Now go ahead and pull your, your, uh, your, your lettuce plant out. Drop in a well started pepper plant. The well-started pepper plant will grow above the beans. They won't fight with each other. Prune off the lower limbs of the pepper plant as it grows. And now you've got beans giving fertility to the peppers, acting as mulch, providing nitrogen through the nitrogen fixation cycle. You're probably going to get one or two flushes of beans. By the time they're done, the pepper's banging for the rest of the year, and we can go into maybe putting something underneath there like spread, spreading out a bunch of lettuce seeds and growing like a baby green toward the end of the season. Where do we get the seeds? Well, remember that, that black-seeded Simpson lettuce plant that this all started with? And it shot up that, and we hung that in that paper bag? When we beat it, we beat that around in that paper bag, we get tons of seed? Maybe we did that with a couple different varieties of lettuce, and we just throw them all in a Ziploc bag and label them lettuce mix. Well, now, once those beans come out, we kind of really lightly, I'm talking the top inch, half inch of soil, kind of till that up, pull the beans out, leave the pepper alone, and we take something like an old salt shaker we can get at the dollar store, we can get at like a, uh, what, do you, what do you call it, Goodwill or something for next to nothing, we'll throw the lettuce seeds in it, maybe we make the holes a little bit bigger, and we just like salt and pepper all around there, and then, boom, we get that mescaline-type growth later in the season while the pepper's still banging for us. And then maybe we success it back into something like a broccoli or a coal crop into winter with kale. And that one square foot produced all of that versus one pepper plant, which is the way most people do things. This is, this is succession planning and thinking layers. All of this really is function stacking. If, if we're going to put something in that's going to produce shade, let's use the shade. If we have an area with a lot of sun, let's put something there that can use the sun and create shade and then use the shade. You, you see how that works. Tie the systems together. When you take an action, have it have multiple results that are all positive and designed and managed in a way that makes sense. And this is all done again by the best way to do this is diagramming. You don't have to be able to draw. Just write down, like, I'm going to have a quail system. Quail system, right? I'm going to have raised beds gardens. Raised bed gardens. I'm going to do some edible landscaping. Edible landscape, right down. I'm going to have an aquaponics system. Aquaponic system. I'm going to do wild foraging. You know, What do I get out of that that I might be able to tie back in? I'm going to do container gardening. Okay, And then once you make the connections, then start placing the locations. Container gardening, back porch. Container gardening links to chickens because chickens provide compost that goes into container gardens. Chickens go on the back fence because that's the shady spot for the chickens in a coop and run model because I don't have enough land to tractor my chickens. That means that I'm going to have to walk out to feed the chickens every day, so I need to take all of my compostables out to my chickens and let them compost it, let's say, in a tub. 
So now the tub is going to go in the chicken run, but they're going to compost. They're going to they're going to eat that stuff to a point where okay, that one they're done with for now. I'm going to put a fresh tub in, take that tub. Where does that tub go? A really great place for that tub to go would be a worm bin. So we put a worm bin right next to where the chickens are. So that that tub comes out, it dumps into the worm bin, the tub goes back in, new compostables go in there. Now we're function stacking the function of the chicken and the worms together, and we have a path that goes out there. If we have a path that goes out there, it might make a lot of sense to, on both sides of that path, plant that path with some edibles or something that's useful to us. When we're walking out in the morning or the afternoon with our little bucket from our kitchen to dump into our chicken's tub, we're walking right along that path. That means that path should never be a weed problem. We look down, we see a weed. You know what? The problem with that weed is it's not big enough yet. Look down, we see another weed. Oh, there's a weed. Pick the weed up, drop it into the bucket. Pick the next weed up, drop it into a bucket. Two or three weeds a day, they go in with the system. Now that all that's function stacking. That's smart design. Next. I really think that we need to focus in these systems on productive livestock, not pets. Now, your dogs, your cats, that's different, but you do have to think about control mechanisms. It's hard to garden with dogs that dig holes in the garden. So you have to train the behavior out or you have to exclude the dog from the environment. Those are your two choices. But when it comes to things like rabbits, if you have a rabbit for a rabbit tree, and that rabbit is for some reason no longer producing bunnies, it becomes a stewing rabbit, or it goes to the rabbit farm nirvana if you can find such a place. But it doesn't stay there and consume a resource and not produce for you. It's time for him or her to go. If you have chickens, and you get yourself a little bantam flock of bantam hens, I think it's fantastic. Little eggs, they're good though, right? You get your little chickens and they're doing their thing, and after about three, they're about three and a half years, you go out there and you feed them, and they make you compost still, but you're getting one or two eggs a week? Uh-uh, that's a pet chicken. That is a, that is a little plump little bantam chicken that makes a good stewing hen. And it's time, and when you know that's coming, you don't forestall it. You bring in your next generation while your previous, your prior generation, your, pre, your, your current generation is still somewhat productive so that 22 weeks into it, 24 weeks into it, six months, when those new ones start laying, as soon as the, the egg count goes up, you don't deceive yourself. You know it's not the old girls. They got to go into the freezer, into the stew pot, into the stock, whatever. Quail, same, quail one season, eat them. They're so good wrapped in bacon. There's no, they don't have the kind of personality chickens do. You don't get attached to them, right? You get the quail. The quail produce. They go to their first molt. By the time they're going to their first molt, you should have your next group of hens and your little roos coming through, and the old guard gets decapitated and baconized. If you do that, you'll be amazed at how much you get just as a byproduct in protein production. I almost think to be really good at this though you do need some animals in the system even if it's just worms you need something to create that fertility and if i had to if i had to pick two and only two it would probably be quail and worms but rabbits are incredibly efficient too it's what you want to work with um I find that children are usually a little bit more okay with eating a quail than a rabbit, but not than a apply to all kids. But you know your family, you make those decisions. So those are my thoughts. Here's some resources I have to go with all this. Um, some from our own people right here. The Hands-On Home by Erica Strauss. 
It does deal some with the outdoor stuff like we've been talking about today. But it's more to how, how to how to organize your home and you know how to make things and preserve things and use things and eat things. And there's no no point of creating all this abundance and then having most of it go to waste or end up with the chickens, right? Um, and then her website, Northwest Edible Life. She does her thing on a small urban lot. Period. Now it's more geared toward Northwest climates, where actually are very great climates to do this type of stuff in. Way easier than something like a South Central, Southwestern climate like I'm in. But man, the information there is great. Um, an old book and the kind of the new version that says, you know, I was a young, stupid teenager when I wrote this, and some of the things weren't really smart, and I wouldn't do them today. Uh, is called Possum Living by Dolly Freed, and I have a link to all this, all these uh, resources today in the. Uh, in the show notes. But Possum Living by Dolly Freed really talks about this type of lifestyle from a standpoint of trying to live on next to nothing. Now, I'm not for living on next to nothing. I like nice stuff. I really do. I, I don't know if you've noticed that, but I don't apologize for success. And I'd rather have money than not have money. And I'd rather have money and nice things than not have money and nice things. But if you can get around the mindset of producing what you need when you don't have money or nice things, then that makes having money and nice things a luxury instead of a necessity. And that's kind of the philosophy I've always tried to live my life from. Build the best life you can, the most successful life you can into your life, but be able to live if it goes away. Preparedness. All right? So I think that's a great book. And really how she talks about how they manage their garden, how they manage chickens indoors in a basement, um, local foraging, fishing, things like that. And, I mean, I've heard from some people about it, like, oh, God, every other word is daddy this and daddy that. She was, like, 17 when she wrote it. That's what little 17-year-old girls called her daddies, as daddy, especially back in the 1970s. All right? It's a fantastic book, even if it's not perfect, and it's a great resource to get your mind right around this. Um, Square Foot Gardening by Mel Bartholomew. Um I did square foot gardening because I wanted to be able to speak about it intelligently. I think for some people, it is probably the only thing from a garden standpoint you need for the rest of your life. You'll love it. You'll stick to it. It's the only thing you'll ever do. And if somebody tries to talk you out of it, you'll smack them in the head. Right? But some people, I think, will just kind of fool around with it. And some people will read the book, gain a lot from it, and not make squares in their gardens. And that's okay, too. It's all up to you, but I think it's a great starting point. If you told me, I want, it, it's it, okay, Jack, it's, it's January 23rd, I want a productive garden this year, I don't have any experience, I don't know what to do, tell me one book to get me to, by August, I felt like I've grown a lot of food for myself and my family, Square Foot Gardening by uh, Mel Bartholomew, definitely. Next, another expert council member, Nick Ferguson. Nick's working on about seven acres in Louisiana. Uh, does earthworks, big-time stuff and all, but his site, Homegrown Liberty, really is tailored to people that want to produce their own food, and it certainly works on smaller acreages. The composting techniques, the layered garden bed techniques, all of those things are fantastic. Definitely taking it up a notch, propagation, all that stuff. Definitely rely on Homegrown Liberty. Another book, and this is like, so if Mel Bartholomew is the starting point for gardening, And you wanted the book that it doesn't really lay out step-by-step step, A, B, C, D. Here's how to do that. But the story of the transformation of one of these small lots into a perennial paradise is a book by Eric Tussenmeyer, who is the guy that did uh, Edible Forest Gardens with Dave Jackie. 
And then Jonathan, I can't think of his last name now off the top of my head, but Jonathan is his, his partner. They bought basically a duplex and each took half of it and transformed the backyard of this duplex into this gorgeous, gorgeous perennial and annual production system. And again, it's not going to say like do this, this, and it's just here's what we did. And when I read that book, I found myself enjoying it just to read it. And getting ideas and thoughts and things and, and going, well, that's not what I would have done and here's what I would have done and why. And, uh, you know, you, 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 when you look through the whole thing, I think it's just a great get your mind geared in the right direction and take things to another level where instead of having, you know, these square foot garden beds, we're basically transforming the entire space into that, you know, urban permaculture design. Uh, next, another book would be Gaia's Garden by Toby Hemingway. Toby Hemingway unfortunately passed away uh, recently. He was a good friend of mine. Um, it really was a, a very hurtful thing to find out that he was not going to make it and understand what he was dealing with. Um, he was an incredible man. And he wrote the book Guy's Garden was like his first real deep thesis into permaculture. And it specifically focuses on the urban level and a layer of things. When I talk about doing something with your dash so that when you're gone, you're still impacting the world, um, Toby's done that. With with Permaculture City is also awesome, but from a standpoint of practical how-to backyard stuff, probably the book that I can recommend for that is Guy's Garden. So you kind of have like the Mel Bartholomew had a garden. Then you have kind of like Paradise Lot on this kind of overriding thought process and actual transformation. And then... Toby's book is kind of the nuts and bolts of how to how to get from A to B in those two different worlds. Um, another thing is there's a video called Permaculture in Microspaces uh, that Jeff Lawton put out prior to one of his previous uh, permaculture design course launches. And I have a link to where that is today, and that's free. You can just watch that online. It is Fantastic, and again, getting your mind around those things. Two other ones I could not find. Um, I have a DVD called Urban Permaculture that was produced by Jeff Lawton. I think Jeff has some issues going on with one of the, with, with the guy he did a lot of video work with in the past, some legal fights about who owns what content, and that's why it kind of disappeared. Um, it I don't think it would be a bad thing if somebody uploaded somewhere where they can't take it down. Just saying. Um, But the urban, because you can't buy it. You can't buy it. I've looked in the store. Um, if you took the, the first permaculture design course that Jeff did online where they sent you the DVDs, you were given it and, and four other great movies as a, as a free gift. That's fantastic. And there's another one. Maybe one of you guys can help me find it. I can't think of the guy's last name now, but his name's Josh. He's also from Australia. I've mentioned this video, and I've put it out dozens of times, and I can't find it in the search function on the site, but it's called Backyard Permaculture. And the guy's got kind of like, I don't know, remember the guy, the, the, the painter from the 70s and 80s on PBS, like, we're going to put a happy little tree. He's got kind of like a white guy afro type thing, not quite as big as that dude had, uh, like that. And he, I would describe it as a little light in the loafers sometimes sounding, but, uh, man, that that is a complete story. Here's a house. It sucks. The yard's overgrown. The soil's gutless. There's never been a chicken on this piece of property. It is exactly what we're talking, like a .15 acre lot. Um, everything, tip to tail, front to back, he goes through it. 
the video I could find online was in like 360 resolution or, or something like that, or 4, 440 or 420 or whatever. Uh, it's, it was an old video. I originally found it on Google Video. Somebody did put it on YouTube. I was unable to find it. Um, I don't think it's for sale anymore. It's got to be around somewhere. If you if you can point me in the direction of either of those two movies now online, I would love to make them available to the audience. Anyway, I hope this helps you out. It's really about how to think. It's I think one of the big things is it is no podcast, no video is going to say, you know, Joe or Jim or Tanya or Tammy or Debbie, you do these 10 things and your life will be better. I think it's about a switch in the mindset of what's possible. Uh, and I'll give you a story here that kind of relates to it, even though it doesn't sound good, because it's about a boat. Back when I still lived in Arlington, when I was had the garden that I had the video in the, the, the show notes for you today, um, I had this old John boat. It was a 14-foot flat-bottom aluminum John boat. And I'll see if I can find the video of this today, too, where I, I did this video of how I, I reconfigured it. And it was kind of a shitty boat, and I always wanted a bigger boat. And I just, at the time, I couldn't justify paying money for it. and But I wasn't happy with the way this boat you know, performed on the lake. It was, you know, just not well organized. And it just seemed like it's a turd. You can only spit shine a turd so much. And one day I was online and I saw a, a guy that used just plywood and some other stuff and converted his John boat into basically like a bass boat. And I was done. I didn't go, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna research 20 other people that did this. I went, oh shit, you just throw some decking in it, create some storage. Okay, let me see what I can do. And I went out, I got some marine grade plywood and it's some exterior-grade cheap carpet and some glue as a starting point, and just started going. And what I came up with was pretty awesome. I sold the boat for like four times what I paid for it. Uh, when we moved Arling from Arlington to Arkansas, I decided I didn't want it to take it up there, and uh, I, I put it up on uh, Texas Fishing Forum. It was gone in like 15 minutes. guy said, as long as it's the boat that's in your video... Don't sell it. Don't do nothing. I'm coming. I'll bring the money. I'll, I'm telling you, sight unseen, I'll buy it. If it starts and runs, I'll buy it. Okay, no problem. And like, it was like six hours later, he was at my house. He drove in from like Tyler. And, 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 and immediately, like, yeah, okay, that's the boat. Here's your money. Bye. So, I mean, it was the switch in the mind of this can be something. And then as soon as you start taking the actions to make it something, when something doesn't work the way you planned, you figure it out, don't get married to it, adapt, adjust, retrofit, do whatever you got to do, and make it work. And I think you'd be amazed what we can do with small backyards. All right, anyway, guys, that is it for today's show. Let me remind you, if you want to support the show, one of the ways you can do that is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. You can see all my Amazon reviews. You can get over and check out things like the deals of the day on Amazon. But as long as you shop tspaz.com, you help support Survival Podcast and the work that we do. Today, my item of the day is an uh, item of day review is called the Cable Matter 6 Outlet Wall Mount Surge Protector. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Okay, here's how this thing works. You take it and you look at one of your little double uh, wall outlets And you just plug this thing in like a new outlet, and it becomes the new outlet. It has six instead of two outlets, and it has two uh, high-speed charging USB ports, which is a big upgrade. If you want it to be there permanently, you can pull the little screw out of the center of your wall plate, take the wall plate off, plug it in, and put the screw back in it. It will hold it there, and it won't yank out. It's got built-in surge protection, and it's got a, a little, like, Light that lets you know there's power to that outlet. It's like a little light green light that's bright enough to be a decent little night light 
that's just kind of, like, didn't do it on purpose, but it worked out that way. About the only negative reviews on Amazon are people that don't like that light, they think it's too bright. I'm like, I think it actually is beneficial in everywhere unless you plugged it in right next to your face where you sleep. But if you didn't like it, all it would take is a little black paint to hide it. It comes in black or white, depending on the color you want, and it costs 17 bucks. It's a damn good product, and I'll tell you the main thing I, I have it for. So my wife has these little plug-in air freshener things, and she plugs them in everywhere. There's a problem with them. They don't take up one plug. They take up two plugs. So if she plugs one in where there's a double outlet, all the plugs are gone, and I can't plug shit into it anymore. So I get one of these. She can have her one side. I still have four plugs and two USB outlets. That means I can put one of my power failure lights there, and I still have two plugs and two USB outlets. Fantastic little device, and... Uh, You know, I think it's it's just, it doesn't take up any space, really. It just comes about an inch further off the wall, and your wall plate did anyway. It looks looks good when it's sitting there. It doesn't look like some big honking, beefy thing. Again, Cable Matter 6 Outlet Wall Surge Protector, TS, TSP item of the day for Amazon reviews. You can find it all at tspaz.com. Not only can you see every review I've ever done there, they are also broken down into category reviews. Now, now. Song of the Day, one of my favorite songs, man. Um, it's by Joe Cocker. Joe Cocker, remember Joe Cocker? And it's uh, A Little Help from My Friends. And this is a song that I always loved. I loved it long before the uh, Wonder Years came out, but it's now it's anchored in my mind with those images of, you know, Little Fred Savage and what was his name in the show, I don't remember, but Winnie Cooper. And, like, I remember that show, like, Okay, I know a lot of people that are older than me, like, they were, they liked that show because it was when they were growing up. Where, like, it was when I was growing up in the 80s, and we were looking 20 years back, it's like when my parents and uncles grew up. And, and the thing was, if you, if you took out the overtones of, like, the Vietnam War being involved in, in that period of time, um, my childhood was a lot like that. And I know that's not really what the song's about. It's just like a really good fit for the song. I found it, I don't even Joe Cocker sings the version that's in The Wonder Years. I think there was some kind of copyright workaround to get somebody else to sing it to make it work for the show over some dispute about licensing or something like that. But I just... And, and the reason that song works for that is because that's how it makes you feel. It makes you feel like everything's okay. And that all you really need is the people around you that support you. And no matter how tough times get, if you've got that... And you've got your sensibilities, you're going to be okay. And that's kind of how I grew up as a kid, man. I mean, like, things were different. It just doesn't seem that... I'm only 45 freaking years old. It just doesn't seem that long ago, the 1980s. But kids just went and did shit, and parents let them do it because kids were sensible enough to not eat Tide Pods. Like, this, the, the nostalgia today has gone from, you know, the good old days to back when kids didn't eat Tide Pods and killed themselves because they were stupid. And this song just makes me feel like we can have that again. It also is something that I think a lot of people don't know about this song. Joe Cocker didn't write this song. Nothing to do with it. Two of the most famous musicians in the world wrote this song. John Lennon, Paul McCartney. And they never released it. And when they heard Joe Cocker's version of it, they were so impressed that they took out an advertisement that they paid for praising it. And I, when I listen to this song, I think, you know, I love John Lennon, and I love Paul McCartney's music. <laughs> um, but I can't think of anybody doing this song but Joe Cocker. And the other reason I like this song is it makes me feel like it could be just about the TSP community. 
when I look at you guys and, and the things you guys do, collaborating on Zello, the forums, Facebook, meetup groups, all that stuff, man, it, there is. I don't know if there's a community close to what TSP has become. That's so broad, so diverse. It, it, it's pretty amazing. And uh, I consider all of you guys my friends. So with that, feel good song for today. And an amazing song. First debuted, I think, by Joe Cocker at Woodstock. All right? That's how far back this really goes. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. to sing out a key yeah. Oh baby how